Almost 2,000 years ago, a man was born contrary to the laws of nature. He lived in poverty, he was reared in obscurity, and he never traveled very extensively. He possessed neither wealth nor influence. His family had little education. In infancy, he startled a monarch. In childhood, he puzzled scholars. In adulthood, he literally ruled nature. He healed the multitudes of the blind and the lame, the mute and the possessed, and he did it all without medicine, without charging for his services. He never wrote anything down, and yet the libraries of the world bulge with the volumes written about him. He never wrote a song or painted a picture or modeled in clay, and yet he has furnished the theme for more art than any of us can possibly imagine. He never practiced medicine, and yet he healed more broken spirits and more broken hearts than all of modern medicine can possibly do. He never started a university, yet all the colleges in the world cannot boast as many students as this person possesses. He never commanded an army, never fired a gun, never drafted a soldier, never ran for political office. Yet no officer, no king had ever had more volunteers under his orders, marching into the very valley of human need, and in that valley bringing up things like orphanages and schools and hospitals. The names of athletes and politicians, artists, emperors, and soldiers have long come and gone, but the name of this person continues on. 2,000 years from his birth, and he still lives. A king could not kill him. Satan could not seduce him. Death could not finish him. The grave could not hold him. Who is he? Would you join me in the Scriptures today of Matthew as we turn to the 16th chapter? And we listen to Peter's declaration about Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me as we read from that 16th chapter, starting with the 13th verse? When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked him, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any other human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. And then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you please be seated and bow your heads, please. Gracious Father, we ask that you 
talk to us during this time, that we might be still enough to hear your voice, that we might have a better understanding of not simply who we are, but who you are, and how we are to apply that knowledge to our everyday lives. Bless this time that we spend in your house, in this time of fellowship, and in this time of learning. And Father, may I lose myself always in the shadow of his cross, that these might be your words and not my words. In the name of the Christ, Jesus Christ, I ask these things. Amen. I need to put this scripture into a little better context to help you understand the deeper issues or even the implications that are provided. Jesus and his disciples have traveled to Caesarea Philippi. It's in the northeast corner of Israel, about 30 or 35 miles away from Galilee. And it's primarily a Gentile, a non-Jewish portion of the land. And Jesus had probably gone there for the very distinct reason of spending more quality time with his disciples. You know as well as I do that the Jewish religious leaders were after him. People wanted to persecute him. And his own chosen people were running after him everywhere he went, asking to be healed or to be fed. And he took them there so that he could spend some time, hopefully to understand and for them to understand exactly who he was and what he was about. And so the disciples went with him to Caesarea of Philippi. Now you need to know that Caesarea of Philippi, big rock at the foot of the mountain, it contained about 14 different religious sects. Some of them included like the temples of Nemesis, the goddess of justice and revenge, or Pan, half man, half goat. And there was also a fertility cult there that would sacrifice little children into the depths of the cave in the waters there. Philip, Herod's son, even built a temple to Caesar in front of the cave known as the Cave of Pan. And you notice how significant this is because deep within that cave is a spring which is the source of the Jordan River. You know how important the Jordan River is to the chosen people. You know that that is where Jesus Christ was baptized. And yet, even as is the source of the Jordan River, this cave reached very deep into the earth It became regarded by many as the entrance of the underworld, the abode of Hades. The god of the lower regions resided there. This was the home of disembodied spirits of the dead. If there is a hell, it had to be there. Jesus and disciples are gathered in a place with a plethora of pagan religions and symbols. The the scenery is dominated by these different temples. Temple after temple catches the eye. One more beautiful, one more elaborate than the other. And Jesus deliberately sets himself against that background. And he asks his disciples, who do people say I am? Now, most likely, the disciples were very careful in their answer. They wanted to make sure that if there was a right answer, they gave it to him. And they wanted to make sure also that they didn't say anything bad, because I'm sure some people had said some things bad about Jesus. So they tried to build him up. And he said, well, some people say you're the ghost of John the Baptist. 
Some say you're the reincarnation of Elijah himself. Some have even mentioned the prophet's name, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. That's pretty good company, Jesus. Pretty good company. But Jesus didn't stop there. He wanted to know more, and so he asked this group of friends that had been with him for almost three years, who knew him better than anyone else. He said, okay, now you, you tell me, who do you think I am? And there most certainly was an awkward silence. The disciples probably exchanged nervous glances, probably looked down at their feet and off into the distance because this was a test. They would like to get the test right. They would like to say the right thing. They were searching for an answer, and an answer wouldn't come. They didn't have any problem reporting what other people said about Jesus, but now he was asking them, who do you say that I am? None of them said anything except one, the one who usually spoke out. The one who is more like us than all of the rest of them put together, probably. And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter's words are nothing short of a miracle because it's a miracle of faith. The account itself says Jesus is burst with joy in his response. Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Peter believed. You and I, we believe. We believe. But what happens if I threw out a pop quiz today and distributed to everybody in these pews a piece of paper and a pencil and asked you to write one word? Who do you say he is? Who do you say he is. What word would you put down there? Well, some of you would probably think of the same words that we used out of Matthew. He's Jesus, Messiah, Son of the living God. Or perhaps you would use Thomas's phrase, Jesus is my Lord and my God. Others would probably write, Jesus is the best friend that I have ever had. He's Messiah, Son of the living God. He's the second person in the Trinity. But what do those titles mean today? When we start throwing around Lord and Savior, what do they really mean if you write them on a piece of paper? Perhaps you would look for adjectives that really describe Jesus and what Jesus means to you. Loving, gentle, compassionate, understanding, forgiving. Or perhaps you would try some phrases like, my helper, my guide, my healer, my friend. Who is Jesus, and does it make any difference? Well, the first thing I want you to know is that, of course, it makes a difference, especially if you're concerned with the nature of God. If you want to know who God is, if you want to understand our Heavenly Father, all you have to do is look at Jesus. We live in a world of chaos. We live in a world that is confused. We live in a world filled with death and with terror. And that's not who God is, not in any way, shape, form, or fashion, because Jesus showed us exactly who God is through his life. And as Christians, we have an extraordinary opportunity because we've seen Christ, and in seeing Christ, we have seen God. 
The very nature of the Father is shown through on the Son. What is God like? Take a look at Jesus and you know exactly what He's like. Sons have a tendency to be very much like their fathers. I don't know how many times my wife says, I'll say something and says, well, that's Chan, my dad, talking. You're acting just like Chan. Or my son. My son will do something that's just like me. Now, I wish he would pick up my better attributes instead of the bad ones, but he's just like me. I didn't even see those attributes in my grandson. You can see God in Jesus Christ. You can know his nature by looking at the Christ. You know God. Christianity grew so rapidly in the beginning because it wasn't following a bunch of laws, especially man-made laws. If you ask the question to a Jew about believing in God, the rabbi will say, read the Torah. But if you ask a Christian, what do you believe in God? They will answer, look at Jesus. The Word has become flesh and the Word dwells among us. Does it matter who Jesus is? Of course it matters. Especially if you want to know God. If you want to know the nature of God, all you have to do is look at Jesus. It also makes a difference if you are trying to live a Christian life. Because Jesus not only shows you what God is like, He shows us what we can be like if we will simply follow Him. If we will take our faith seriously day to day. Jesus is the standard by which we should live our lives. Jesus can be our teacher. He can be our friend. But He is the reference point in our world. There's a small metal disc on the Meads Ranch in north-central Kansas. And before we got to all this global positioning and using the stars and all that, they had measured that this small metal disc in northern Kansas is where the 39th parallel from the Atlantic to the Pacific and the 98th meridian running from Canada to the Rio Grande That's where they crossed. It was the exact center of the United States. And from that that point, everything else was measured. Ocean liners took it from that point. Airplanes took it from that point. You couldn't build a dam. You couldn't fire a missile unless it was accurate from that point in northern Kansas. A small metal disc was the reference for everything we measured here in these United States. There was no approximation in the location. It was exact. But then you look at our world today. You look at our society. You look at our chaos. We don't know whether we're coming, we're going, or whether we've just gotten there. Everyone uses their own individual reference point to rationalize or justify either their behavior or their decision. But for Christians, we have one reference point. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Not just a bracelet you wear. It's a question you need to ask and something you need to live into. Because he has shown us the way and he should be the reference point for who we are and what we're doing day to day. He has not only revealed the character of God, he has also patterned the ideal life for all of us. And if we would follow his teachings just a little more instead of the world's teachings, I think this would be a much better place to live. The last thing I want to say is, does Jesus make a difference? Of course, 
He reveals the nature of God. He reveals to us what it means to try to live a Christian life. And finally, He gives us the true direction and power to live it. He gives us strength of the Holy Spirit. I never said it's easy. But Jesus Christ gives us the strength to live each and every day. But we got to use the power. we got to turn it up. We don't get it by osmosis. When I was born a long, long time ago, there was one Peter Marshall who was chaplain of the U.S. Senate. A wonderful, wonderful preacher. And not long before I was born, he wrote a sermon because we had used atomic power, atomic energy at the end of World War II, bombing Nagasaki, bombing Hiroshima. And this was the next best thing. Atomic power, atomic energy was going to change everything. And Peter Marshall wrote these words, and I'd like you to hear them. He said, not a single one of these new powers discovered by man possesses any redeeming force. Neither fire nor steam nor explosives nor electricity, not even atomic energy can change the nature of mankind. The greatest force ever bestowed on mankind steamed forth in the blood and the sweat and the tears of the one who died on the cross. When Jesus Christ was crucified, that's power. A power so great that it shattered the last fortress, the fortress of death. A power so great that it made atonement for all the sins of the world. A power so great that it provided us the ability to live this life victoriously as children of God. A power so great that it enables us as believers to do the mighty works of Jesus Christ. To experience His power, His energy flowing through each and every one of us. It is a tremendous source of power. With it, nothing is impossible. And without it, nothing we do has any eternal value or significance. It is our relationship with God that not only shows the relationship with Christ, not only that shows the nature of God, not only shows us how to live, but gives us the power and strength to do that. Does it make any difference? Of course it does. Of course it does. And yet each and every one of you have to answer that question for yourself. There's not another soul in this world that can answer that question. Not a spouse, not a family member, not a next-door neighbor, not even a pastor. Each of us has to answer the question for ourselves. Who is he? And does it make a difference. Nobody can answer it except you. All of you have been to receptions, birthday parties, where you enter in. There's a whole group of people milling around and they're talking and drinking and having a great time. And you look at the far side and there's somebody there, and the eyes meet, and you see each other. I want you to imagine entering into a room like that with all those people, and imagine as you enter the room, on the far side of the room is Jesus. He's happy to see you, and he begins to edge his way through the crowd toward you. 
But there's a question on his face because he's slowly coming toward you. His eyes are intent on you. And all of a sudden, there's a question that wells up in your mind. He's coming to ask me the same questions he asked the disciples at Caesarea Philippi. Who do you say that I am? Oh, your adrenaline kicks in. Your hands start to sweat. Your heart starts to beat faster. Oh, my goodness. It's really Jesus. He's here. He's coming to talk to me. Your mind goes back to all those flashbacks into Sunday school, all the things you learned, all those great Sunday sermons from the pastor, all the Bible teachings that you learned. What are you going to say? What did you learn? Is there a right answer to the question, who is he? He continues to come in your direction, and the butterflies start flapping around. They're active in your stomach, and you remember the conversation that Jesus had with the disciples, and the other people said that, well... He was David, maybe he's Elijah, maybe he's Jeremiah, I don't, maybe he's the ghost of John the Baptist. And you think back what you've learned about him, where people have loved him, people have hated him. Some expected him, as I say, to be a great warrior like David. Some have expected him to be the prophet like Elijah. Oh, and then you remember from, uh, I, whew, I get on a roll. Then you go to Christmas, you remember Isaiah. You think about all the things written there, oh, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father. Prince of Peace, Jesus is coming to greet you. Who is he? Was he a king? Was he a priest? Was he a prophet? Who is this man? And Jesus is coming closer. His eyes shine with a love. He smiles at you. But the question is still there on his face. The thought flickers through your mind. Well, maybe I should just ask him who he says he is. Now, that's the wrong thing to do. You remember the miracles, the healing of the blind, the, the, making, of the, lame, the walking, making the lame walk, bringing the dead back to life. He couldn't save his own skin. He died on a cross. What difference does it make? Who is this man? He's coming closer to me. What difference does it make? Now there are only a couple people between you and Jesus. He's looking straight at you. Then it hits you. Then it hits you. Your discovery is your discovery. It must be your personal discovery. It can't be anybody else's. It's your definition. No one else's. It all boils down as what do you say? Jesus wants to know what you say. Jesus wants to know what you think. And it suddenly occurs to you that Christianity, this Christian faith, isn't knowing about Jesus. It's knowing Jesus in the very depths of your heart. That makes the difference. That's what the Christ wants to hear. But he's so close now. Time is up. Jesus stands in front of you. The heart is pounding. He looks at you with those wonderful eyes that love you, and yet they pierce straight through you. Love of eyes that are so radiant. And he stares at you, and in almost a whisper, he says, Who do you say I am? Let us pray.